Welcome to Global Thought Podcast, brought to you by the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University. I'm Vishaka Desai, Vice Chair of the Committee on Global Thought, or CGT as we call it. In this episode, we welcome CGT member Professor Neil K. Agrawal, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia University and a research psychiatrist at New York State uh, Psychiatric Institute. Um, He will talk about his recently released book, Media Persuasion in the Islamic State. Neil Agrawal was awarded the 2018 Columbia University Press Distinguished Book Award for his previous book, Mental Health and the War on Terror, Culture, Science, and Statecraft. He's also the author of another Columbia University Press book, The Taliban's Virtual Emirate, The Culture and Psychology of an Online Militant Community. As you can see, Professor Agrawal has been thinking about the Islamic State and the terrorist network in different parts of the world for a long time. So I am delighted that Professor Agrawal is with you. Um, Can you tell us, Professor Agrawal, about how you came to this new topic, because you've been really working in this for more than a decade. And tell us something about this book that actually gives you new insight in terms of the terrorist network. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think that in terms of where this book lies with my other interests, uh, as you mentioned, my first book with uh, Mental Health and the War on Terror, I was very interested in how psychiatrists, psychologists, and other uh, medical professionals were thinking about the issue of violence and how, to a certain extent, we take certain assumptions about the self or about uh, inflicting pain on others Uh, within a Euro-American secular framework and then create a whole body of knowledge and practice uh, to pathologize the people who we would call terrorists. And so the first book is very much a critique of how mental health professionals have worked with the government uh, in the war on terror. And then in that book, I started to notice that that, uh, militants also have their own publications and media presence that provides almost a separate and contrasting way of thinking about the war on terror. And so that stimulated my interest, particularly in al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So in my second book uh, called The Taliban's Virtual Emirate, what became of interest to me was how the Taliban changes its messaging based on language, really in conversation with newer work in the humanities around literary cultures. So for example, when they're writing in Arabic or in English, which are more global languages, they'll present themselves in jihad in one way. But then when they write in English, or excuse me, in um, Urdu or in Persian, they present themselves in a different way. And at times they're totally contrasting. So I thought that was pretty curious. And these, this one militant group would have totally different messaging based by language. And then as I was looking at how the Taliban and the Islamic State started to vie for leadership around the, among the worldwide jihadist community, that's what interested me in looking at the Islamic State's media in particular. So it seems to me that one of the things you're looking at uh, is about language and which language works in a transnational setting and which language works particularly in a regional setting. Um, the reality is that you're a very unique psychiatrist. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got to this focus on language. 
So I think that probably has to do with my training. In psychiatry, uh, we often uh, talk about the role of language and as a way of making meaning. So psychiatry is unique compared to the other fields of medicine where we don't have a laboratory or radiological test that we can use to diagnose somebody. We can only use those kinds of tests to rule out disorders. Other than that, the rest of our work consists really in uh, gathering narratives and then interpreting them based on our own classification systems. And so I think it's that role of language that has always been very interesting to me and how people use language to make meaning, how people use language to... Uh, identify themselves as belonging to a particular group or to disparage others, how people use language as forms of practice. And you yourself have training in some of these languages, which also seems to me quite unusual uh, in terms of your own practice and work. Yes, I went to graduate school and I studied uh, Middle Eastern and South Asian studies, uh, particularly looking at the relationship between Hinduism and Islam. And so the languages that I studied in graduate school are typically the languages that I work in right now. So in this new book on media persuasion, uh, as you analyze different languages, what was the element that surprised you the most or the biggest insight that you felt you got out of writing this book? So if anybody who's listening to this podcast has ever written a book, um, uh, they might be able to sympathize with what I'm about to say, which is I thought I had written a manuscript for this book that was 80% done. And then I watched one particular video from the Islamic State that totally moved me. And it was this video that I introduced uh, in, that really lays the foundation of the book where there are these... Uh, group of guys who are dressed in New York Yankees uh, baseball caps and are singing casually and joking around with each other. And they're singing a song that's called a nasheed, which is a type of a cappella uh, verse that jihadists will often use uh, to, um, to inspire each other. And I noticed that the rhythm of it was really moving. And it sounded like a military march. It was like, and the words were, and so I started to think to myself, well, this is really interesting because not only is this written in great meter, it's really catchy. And I found myself then humming along to this even when I wasn't watching the video and thought, well, that's curious. Like over time, this has now started to infiltrate my own thoughts. And I wonder to what extent if I were susceptible to any form of sympathy or violence toward the Islamic State, that, that that could affect me. And so I became more interested in the idea of like what this media has to say and what the psychology of persuasion is. And this whole idea of music, which we know from many other movements, whether it's civil rights or the independence movement in India, we know that music played a very big role. So do you think that using music was a very important part, and do they do it in a way that also transcends border? Is that one of the reasons why catchy tunes on social media become important? I think music is one element of a broader media empire that the Islamic State was able to construct. And so when I have listened to some songs from the Islamic State, whether it's in French or it's in Arabic, I notice that they take elements of hip-hop with heavy percussion and tenebric bass lines, and they then create whole messages around that. And media, 
for them seems to be much more of a cornerstone uh, than, say, some of the other groups that I've studied. And their films are, or their short films or their videos are, I think, what caught most people's attention when they first started to have a public So you mean the Islamic State in that sense, ISIS, as we would have known, is different from al-Qaeda or Taliban? Is that what you mean by that? Yes. I mean, I think that those groups have also used media, but I don't think that they've been as ahead of the curve in thinking about trends, trends nationally, that uh, in the way that the Islamic State has. So, for example, the Islamic State will take movie posters and will then create images of warriors, still images, that look like they're very similar to those of Hollywood producers. Uh, And they'll use different kinds of screenshots. They'll use cinematography and angles. So that way it creates this really immersive experience in a much more deliberate way than, say, uh, the the Taliban or al-Qaeda has. So what is the result of this kind of media persuasion? Do we know whether it's more successful? Do we know anything about the recruitment that actually results from this? Yeah, so the book looks at the Islamic State over time, uh, right from when it starts in uh, 2003, from Abu Musa al-Zakawi, who gained infamy for beheading different uh, Europeans or Americans who were in Iraq. And what I wanted to do is look at how this media changes over time and to what extent uh, it reflects not just changing um, events in the war on terror, particularly in Iraq or in Syria, but also how it reflects changing ideas of culture and psychology. And so when you so there are three main elements of persuasion that seem pretty consistent if we look at the psychology of persuasion. The first is that there's a very clear mode of argumentation where they'll stipulate propositions that they expect the audience to engage with. The second is that they will very selectively interpret verses from the Quran or Hadith that are not traditionally attested to, um, but reflect their own particular viewpoint that calls people to violence. And then the third is to really draw contrast between their group of believers and the rest of the world who are outsiders and infidels. But what's notably different over time is that right around the group uh, declaring itself as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, ISIS, in 2013, we start to see a shift where instead of long videos that recite religious texts, that instead it's much more character-driven. So they'll take an old man, or they'll take a 15-year-old boy, or they will, take, uh, they will take people from other nationalities and talk about how they are all trying to create this utopian vision of the world. And the fact that it becomes much more character-driven rather than focused on religious texts, I think is another element of persuasion that we should be paying attention to, which is character likability. So what is, do you think, the relationship between the changes in media strategy and politically what's happening on the ground and whether one can see any correlation between the two? Yeah, so after 2013, when it, it, the group declares itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, and then after that, uh, the Islamic State, what is clearly noticeable in its media is that there's this huge emphasis on law and order, governance, education, healthcare. And so it's very, very evident that the group is trying to position itself as the as the state, as the insurer of basic functions in the ways that we think that citizens contract with their governments. And that's very, very different 
than in previous years. And it also reflects the local realities in Syria where there's a civil war and concerns that the government is not fulfilling its law and order or um, basic service functions to the citizens on the ground. What do we know about the way this particular cell, if you will, of Islamic State operates? Is it centralized? Is it something at the direction of somebody? Do we know anything about the operation of this media operation? So the bureaucratic documents that I've been able to access through the uh, Department of Defense, which hosts a very public database for people to be able to, uh, to investigate, seems to suggest that there's a very tightly controlled and centralized uh, hierarchy where there might be a media, uh, there's, there's a media division and a media wing, and they have, even now to this to the current day, they have a weekly that they publish called Anaba in Arabic. And I mean, they, they publish it very, very diligently. There might be interruptions based on how events take place on the ground, say with uh, U.S.-led coalition troops, but it's still up and running. I saw their episode this week, uh, sorry, not their episode, but their issue this week. And it's still a core element of how they disseminate their messaging to people who they expect to be reading their periodicals, whether it's new recruits or people already on the ground working with them. So does it change in terms of when they're trying to recruit new people versus when they're just trying to propagate uh, sort of in a propagandistic way how they're doing some work? Yeah. So I think that this is a very, very um, interesting point in terms of comparing what their media says to current events. One of the things that I've noticed, particularly ever since uh, after 2017, the U.S. decided to help foster the global coalition against uh, the Islamic State, is that there are now more themes around steadfastness and perseverance and recognizing that that there is now the world turned against them and that uh, as long as they maintain jihad and maintain their belief in God, that they will also overcome this. And that's a different message than, say, in 2013 or in 2014 when there were these brief vines almost of a few minutes long where they would show children studying in schools, where they would show Islamic State fighters providing basic provisions like flour or sugar or other kinds of goods to citizens on the ground. Or then they would show old men talking about how they wish they could follow their own children into jihad and martyrdom. So the messaging does change based on current events. It seems to me that a book like this would be of great deal of use to officials. Um, can you talk a little bit about, where, not this book because it just come out, but even other books, whether you've had any interest from the defense officials or other people, State Department, where they're interested in learning more about this to see how to tackle it? I've had more interest from think tanks rather than the government. Um, I'm pretty critical of the U.S. government as well. I don't believe that one can talk about countering violent extremism or preventing violent extremism without also talking about the ramifications of U.S. American foreign policy. We have these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that have now engulfed an entire generation of people. Uh, people have come of age during this time. And I think it's, um, I think that we should critique all sides um, because ultimately, as a psychiatrist, as a health professional, I, I'm interested in not just violence prevention, but how do we maximize well-being and safety? And so if we're thinking of violence as a public health problem, then it seems, uh, it seems self-serving on a certain level, not entirely because I don't 
obviously agree with the Islamic State, but I do think that we need to be thinking about how we can accomplish ends in, say, Iraq or in Afghanistan through a multifaceted approach like diplomacy or like coalition building rather than just war. Or understanding cultures and see where that goes. Exactly. I mean, the Islamic State is all too ready to keep using images of Guantanamo or Abu Ghraib to show that the American has that the American government has uh, has really perpetrated atrocities, and so I don't think that we should give them uh, that kind of fodder for their media. It, do people actually then sometimes actually criticize your work to say, "Are you an apologist for?" these terrorist organization just because you're trying to understand them? I think that when I was first writing in this area, that there wasn't this sense that militant media should be taken as seriously as a unit of study because it's ultimately propaganda. I would counter that in the same way that we now study Nazi propaganda or that we study say, fascist propaganda uh, from World War II, that it's always very important to look at primary sources in general, just to get a sense for what another side may think in terms of how we approach study either contemporaneously or historically of any group. And in that sense, the Islamic State offers a wealth of materials. I mean, they're, at some points, they were releasing like 120-odd media uh, products every single week at the peak of when they had declared the caliphate in 2014. I don't get the idea, I don't get criticisms that I'm an apologist for the Islamic State. I do get criticisms that maybe I spend too much time studying this or that at times, since I do incorporate links to this media in my books for independent scholarly verification, that that might lead some people to, uh, exposed, to be exposed to this media. And so, I mean, I do want to make it clear that I have no, no sympathy whatsoever. Anybody who's even remotely familiar with uh, my work would know that. Um, We are coming to an end. If you want somebody to buy this book Mm -hmm. in very short uh, messaging, why should people read this book and who should read it? So aside from what we just talked about with media persuasion, I believe that what is interesting about the Islamic State and why we should study not just the Islamic State, but groups like it, is because they offer a critique of globalization. I think that, to bring it back to some of the central concerns of CGT, why these groups could uh, be of value for us to study and learn from is because, at least from my standpoint as a psychiatrist, as a cultural psychiatrist, I'm always thinking about several areas. First is is, um, how people think of the self, how people think of others, how people think about violence, um, how people think about knowledge or information flows. So let's take a few of those examples. Um, In terms of how we think about the self, we live in a 21st century society where on a census application, I can check off my race, my ethnicity, I can check off even my my gender, um, and I can self-identify in the way that I choose to. And what's interesting, I think, about the Islamic State is that this is a fundamental critique that they level, where they say that in the secular Euro-American uh, framework that many people live in, that it's all pleasure-driven, it's all materialistic, that it's godless. There's no overarching sense of morality or guiding set of principles that bind us together as a society. I'm not saying that we need to agree with it, but I do think that it raises questions about how we think about secularism and the state. Um, similarly, we believe in m- multicultural societies 
that there's a place for everybody uh, through pluralism, through uh, ideas of tolerance or multiculturalism. The Islamic State rejects that and has been very successful in recruiting up to, some estimates suggest, eighty to 100,000 people. And so in this current political moment, when we're talking about migration and there are voices uh, progressively on the left, um, which I often self-subscribe to, that um, we believe that there should be free people and free borders, then what does it mean for migrants to go to uh, the Islamic State and across different countries? And is this like the dark side of migration? It seems to me that in that area of multiculturalism, actually Islamic State also pays attention to diversity of cultures that are not necessarily religious but therefore using different languages and different strategies. So there is something about diversity of cultures to try to hone some kind of a unified message that is more towards the idea of the ummah. So it seems to me that that in itself is a strategy we should be thinking about, is that how do you approach different groups of people? Yeah, I mean, the... In, in cultural psychiatry or in cultural psychology, we have this or, and concept called organizational tightness. And what's interesting is that if one were to look at the Islamic State's media over time, that it's very clear that despite the languages that they use or the different media platforms that they employ, whether it's music, whether it's uh, periodicals, whether it's uh, videos, that there is this single unitary message. It's very different from, for example, the Taliban, where there are a varieties of messages that, ba- that change based on language. So here we are, 2019, and some people would say that Islamic State is actually not just in retreat, but some people are saying that actually they are destroyed, even though we know that that's not totally true. So as you look out into the future, where do you think that whole enterprise of Islamic State will be as you move forward, considering that there has been a tremendous sense of uh, retreat of the Islamic State. So last year, three different sources uh, mentioned that there are still probably twenty to 30,000 fighters uh, with the Islamic State, who most of whom have probably gone underground. Even though they don't have the territory that they used to have, that this recalls how the Islamic State really was in 2010 or 2011, when the American forces, through the troop surge in Iraq, thought that it had defeated the group. So I can't predict the future, but what I can say is that, to a certain extent, we may have seen this movie before, and in the same way that we didn't enlist local allies in the population, or we didn't think through more some of the kinds of legal regimes around prosecution, about uh, returnees, uh, foreign re- fighters returning to their home governments, that some of those kinds of debates are, seem to me to be still current and worthy of thinking through so that way we can prevent something like this from happening again. Thank you, Neela Graval, and congratulations for your new book, Thank you. Media Persuasion in the Islamic State. Thank you.